Chapter One, Part Two of the Curious Lore of Precious Stones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Curious Lore of Precious Stones by George Frederick Kuntz. Chapter One: Superstitions and Their Sources, Part Two in the early part of the last century a series of very interesting experiments designed to demonstrate the effects produced on a sensitive subject by the touch of precious stones and minerals were made in the case of the seeress of provost frederica halfa born eighteen o one a woman believed to possess remarkable clairvoyant powers when pieces of granite porphyry or flint were placed in her hand she was not affected in any way the finest qualities of fluorspar on the other hand had a marked action relaxing the muscles causing diarrhoea and producing a sour taste in the mouth occasionally a somnambulistic state was induced this latter condition was also produced by iceland spar and by the sapphire while the substances so far noted depressed the vital energy sulfate of barium stimulated the muscles produced an agreeable warmth of the body and made the subject feel as though she could fly through the air if the application of this material was long continued the pleasurable sensation found expression in laughter in the case of witherite a carbonate of barium this effect was produced to an even greater degree for if water in which this mineral had been dipped were swallowed spasms of laughter resulted rock crystal also was found to possess a strongly stimulating influence for if put in the hand it aroused the subject from a half slumber and if placed on the pit of the stomach it had the power to awaken the seeress from a somnambulistic trance while at the same time an aromatic odor was diffused around when however the application was continued for some time the muscles stiffened until finally an epileptic state ensued indeed the rigidity produced was so great that the limbs resisted all attempts to bend them the same effect in a much less degree was caused by glass even by looking at it or by the tones emitted by a glass object when struck all colorless silicates the diamond and even gypsum had a similar effect as did also heliotrope and basalt either of which caused a bitter taste in the mouth the most powerful action was that exerted by hematite the oxide of iron in this substance inducing a kind of paralysis with a sensation of inner chill this condition could only be relieved by the application of a piece of witherite octahedrons of magnetite or lodestone caused a sensation of heaviness and convulsive movements of the limbs even when the material wrapped up in paper was brought near the subject spinel in whose composition oxide of chromium enters caused the same symptoms as lodestone except in this case the force seemed to exert itself from the hand upward along the arm while with the lodestone the action was downward along the arm to the hand owing to the attractive quality of the magnetic iron ruby called forth a sensation of coldness in the tongue and rendered this member so heavy that only incoherent sounds could be emitted the fingers and toes also became cold and the body was agitated by a violent shivering but to all these bad symptoms succeeded a sense of elasticity and well-being 
not however without a vague fear that the stone might cause a renewal of the physical depression when chrysoprase was used chills and shivering resulted beginning at the breast and spreading thence over the whole body we have touched upon the hypnotic influence exercised by gems but there can be no doubt that the subject has not been as carefully studied as it deserves to be that the hypnotic state can be induced by gazing fixedly upon a bright object held just above the eyes is a well-known fact but quite probably a similar though not so pronounced effect results from gazing on a bright object just before the gazer's eyes in the case of colored precious stones the effects of the various color rays combine with the light effects and strengthen the impression upon the optic nerve all this however concerns only the purely physical impressions but we know that very often the hypnotic state is produced by a mental impression by the belief or the fear that the state will supervene with precious stones as hypnotizing agents the mental impression is widely different for here the physical impression is heightened by the consciousness of the value and rarity of the material the fascination that a fine set of jewels with all their sparkle and color exercises upon the mind of a woman who sees them in their glorious radiance on the neck the arms and the head of another woman is not only due to the beauty of the spectacle but is largely owing to the consciousness that they are rare and valuable objects and are perhaps eloquent witnesses of the power of love a dash of envy sometimes serves to render the emotion more complex the names of precious stones and semi-precious stones are frequently used as adjectives and when so employed convey something more to the mind than do the corresponding adjectives of color we may instance the following expressions the emerald isle and emerald meadows sapphire seas and sapphire eyes ruby wine ruby lips and in shakespeare the natural ruby of your cheeks coral lips and coral ears pearly teeth and pearly skin turquoise skies amethystine locks and in roman times amber hair in all these cases the name of the precious mineral is really used as a superlative of the adjective suggesting the choicest variety of the color or shade the phrases hard as adamant and clear as crystal show a similar use of the name of a precious or ornamental stone to express the highest grade of a given quality before the introduction of the point system in topography three of the grades of type bore the names of precious stones namely diamond type agate type and emerald type this latter designated is employed only in england where agate type is called ruby type another size was denominated pearl type a fanciful tale written not long ago treats of the practical inconveniences which would result could such metaphorical expressions find a realization in fact at the birth feast of a certain princess one of the fairies was not invited she nevertheless made her appearance after the other fairies had endowed the child with many good qualities the neglected fairy said i will give her vanity and her vanity shall change her beauty to the things it is said to resemble however a friendly fairy came to the rescue saying i will give her unselfishness and by it she shall turn her beauty back to what she wishes it to be the result can easily be imagined as the little princess grew up 
those who wished to flatter her vanity spoke of her teeth of pearl of her golden hair of her coral lips and of her sapphire eyes upon this her teeth changed to pearls her hair to spun gold her lips to coral and her eyes to two magnificent sapphires however beautiful as these were they did not grant the power of sight so that the unhappy princess became blind not long after this a revolution deprived the king and queen of their throne and they were reduced to great poverty in these straits the daughter sacrificed her gold hair to relieve their wants and immediately the spell was dissolved and she regained all her natural beauty shelley who saw the world illumined by the rainbow hues of poetic fancy wrote of diamond eyes and emerald sky the emerald heaven of trees the sapphire ocean sapphire tinted skies the sapphire floods of interstellar air and the chrysolite of sunrise for some reason he does not use the ruby a favorite stone with many poets and psychologists might find in this a proof that red appeals less strongly to the idealist than do the other colors the principal literary sources for the talismanic and therapeutic virtues attributed to ornamental stones may be divided into several groups at first more or less independent of each other but combined to a greater or lesser extent by later writers pliny gives sometimes rather grudgingly a number of superstitions current in his time but the alexandrian literature of the second third and fourth christian centuries provides a much richer field for these superstitions as shown in the orphiric poem lithica the cyrianides attributed to hermes trismegistus the little treatise on rivers which bore the name of plutarch and last but not least in the work by damageron which purported to be written by an arab king named evax and sent by him to tiberius or nero the influence exerted by the legends surrounding the stones of the high priest's breastplate and those chosen as foundation stones for the new jerusalem will be treated elsewhere in the seventh eighth and ninth centuries a new literature on this subject made its appearance probably in asia minor some of the works were originally written in syriac and later translated into arabic others were composed in the latter language this source was drawn upon for the production of the lapidarium of alphonsus x of castile this compilation although dating in its present spanish form from the thirteenth century is based upon a much older original in chaldee or syriac there can be little doubt that many hindu superstitions no longer preserved for us in the literature of india are reproduced in these syrio-arabic works wherein we also have much that is of alexandrian origin this indeed is easily explained by history for the arabs through their widely extended conquests were led to absorb and amalgamate the data they secured directly or indirectly from the east and the west while this literature was developing in the mohammedan world the tradition of pliny and solanus was translated to the christian world of the seventh and succeeding centuries by isidorus of seville this brings us to the remarkable poetical treatise on the virtues of precious stones by marbodas bishop of rennes a work written at the end of the eleventh century and often quoted as that of evax indeed it purports to be by him 
and really contains a good part of the material composing the treatise of Damageron or Evax. At the same time, Marbotus drew freely upon Pliny, either directly or through Isidorus. For the Middle Ages, this poem of Marbotus, already translated into Old French in the 12th century, became known as Lapidario par excellence, and furnished a great part of their material to medieval authors on this subject. Soon, however, extracts from the Arabic sources became available, and the whole mass of heterogeneous material was worked over and recombined in a variety of ways. This complex origin of the traditions explains their almost incomprehensible contradictions regarding the virtues assigned to the different stones, and also the fact that the qualities of one stone are frequently attributed to another one, so that, in the later works on this subject, it becomes quite impossible to present a satisfactory view of the distinguishing qualities and virtues of the separate stones. The habit of copying, without discrimination or criticism, whatever came to hand, and the aim to utilize as much of the borrowed material as possible, is scarcely less a characteristic of the 17th and 18th century writers than it is of those of later date. This is, in part, an excusable and even an unavoidable defect, but it should be minimized as much as possible. The treatise known under the title Syrianides was, as we have noted, a product of the Alexandrian school. It was asserted to be the work of Hermes Trismegistus, the name given by the Greeks to the Egyptian god Thoth. Here we have a specimen of the species of magic, known as literomancy, or divination by means of the letters of the alphabet, since a stone, a bird, a plant, and a fish, each beginning with the same letter and signifying the four elements, are given for each of the twenty-four letters of the Greek alphabet. These four objects were to be grouped together to form a talisman, the bird being usually engraved on the stone, while a portion of the fish and of a plant was placed in the bezel of the ring in which the stone was to be set. Another, almost contemporary work, is the exceedingly curious and interesting treatise by St. Epiphanius, Bishop of Constantia, on the twelve gems of the breastplate of judgment of the high priest. Exodus chapter 28, verses 15 to 21. This unique production is in the form of a letter addressed to Diodorus, Bishop of Tyre, and it is peculiarly valuable as the first of a long series of attempts to elucidate the question as to the identity of the twelve stones. The special virtues of each stone are also given, and this treatise may be regarded as the prototype of all the Christian writings on the symbolism of stones. A most interesting medieval treatise on the virtues of precious stones forms part of the De Rerum Natura of Thomas de Cantimpre, 1201-1270, who was a pupil of Albertus Magnus and composed his work between 1230 and 1244. The Latin text has never been printed, but the book was translated into German by Conrad von Megenberg about 1350. Strange to say, the translator did not know the name of the writer, and suppose when he began to translate the book that it was by Albertus Magnus. In many cases, Thomas de Cantimpre merely copies the statements of older authors, but occasionally he gives us new material, or at least a new version of his originals. The renowned medieval philosopher and theologian Albertus Magnus, 1193-1280, for a short time Bishop of Ratisbon, 
and who later taught theology in the university of paris and had the great saint thomas aquinas for a pupil was not altogether free from the superstitious notions of his time traces of which appear in certain of his numerous writings many years after his death some of this material was extracted from his works and amplified by additions from other sources was published under the title secrets de virtus de herbs pierres et bis of this there are two versions one being an epitome of the other and termed respectively le grand albert and le petit albert these little books were often reprinted and widely circulated and eventually enjoyed great popularity among the french peasants indeed even to the present day they may still be met with in out-of-the-way parts of rural france among literary deceptions one of the boldest was that practiced in the early part of the seventeenth century by ludovico dulce this writer made in fifteen sixty five a literal translation into italian of the speculum lapidum of camillo leonardo printed in venice in fifteen o two and he had the courage to issue it as his own work under the title trattato delle gemme che produce la natura in view of the general familiarity with latin among the better classes of that period and the numerous fine libraries existing in venice at the time it seems almost extraordinary that dulce should have been successful in palming off this work as his own but even today citations are made from dulce's trato del gemme and from leonardo's speculum lapidum as though these were distinct works end of chapter one part two